Hi, welcome to the Trussex Wild Apothecary podcast. I'm Rox. I'm Trussex Wild Apothecary based in Stirlingshire, Scotland in the UK. Um, I'm an avid forager, a yoga teacher, interested in movement, nature, herbal medicine, gastronomy, food activism and encouraging slow, local, seasonal, healthy eating connected to a sense of place. I'm also director at the Job Hub G63, which is a local a social enterprise aiming at creating sustainable living and changing our global food system by acting locally. Check out my website for walks, more workshops, or to come and stay in our cabin in the beautiful Trossachs. It's www.trossachswildapothecary.com or find me on Facebook. And I'm delighted to be starting this podcast off by speaking to my foraging mentor, Mark Williams of Galloway Wild Foods. Hello, Mark. Oh, hi, Rox. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Thanks for agreeing to be my first podcastee. <laughs> well, it's my first, uh, uh, yeah, my first appearance on a podcast as well. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of uh, getting used to the uh, how it all works as well. So, yeah, we'll hold each other's hand. Great. <laughs> so, I think it might be good if you we start by a little bit about yourself and what you do and how you got into foraging. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm uh, Mark Williams. I um, uh, I guess I started foraging uh, when I was about seventeen, and I'm now forty-seven. That's quite scary. Um, and I yeah, so got into shoots um, as a you know in, in summer holidays on the Isle of Arran, and kind of got the got the mushroom bug way back then. And uh, yeah, it seemed, and it kind of just went from there. Um, I kind of never looked back really. I just uh, got really excited about fungi and taught myself all about them in a reasonably short amount of time, though I still remember feeling extremely nervous about eating anything for, for a few years. So I try and remember that feeling uh, now. And, uh, you know, 30 years later, I suppose uh, the last 10 years I've been, nearly 10 years, I've been a full time foraging teacher uh, through my business, Galloway Wild Foods. Um, and what I do is a combination of uh, public guided walks, uh, so it could be on fungi, uh, seaweeds, plants, uh, wild booze, do quite a lot of that sort of thing as well, Or um, and um, and I do private events um, with uh, people just book me to take out a family, or it could be a group who work together, or anything like that, just for a, a nice day out, and you know, some people it's about more about the fun, and other people are very focused on the learning. And, uh, and then I do kind of consultation work with some distilleries and uh, uh, breweries and uh, chefs and, and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's it. There's quite a lot in between there where I just did uh, for guided walks uh, in my spare time. But, uh, yeah, it's been quite a journey, really. And, yeah, it's nice, nice, to, be, uh, nice to be doing what I, what I love for, uh, for a living, really. Yeah. Yeah, I I see on your um like your Facebook post that you seem to be all over the place in really beautiful places across Scotland. Well, yeah, um, yeah, I get to travel to yeah you know, really beautiful places, and I mean I, I have more kind of offers of work um than I could really do, so uh, I get to kind of pick and choose, and it's a lifestyle business. I'm not trying to uh, I have no ambition to employ anyone, um, so. You know, I just uh, yeah, just gonna go where the where the exciting, fun work is, and try and find the right balance between uh, you know being out in interesting places and exploring new places, and uh, being at home because you know there's there's treasure around us all the time, and uh, you know I live in a beautiful place in southwest Scotland in the Fleet Valley, and uh, so that that's nice as well. So it's, it's getting the balance between those two right. I don't always quite manage it, but uh, mostly it's it's pretty good. 
Do, um, do you have a favorite place that you that you go to or that you've been to? Um, well, it kind of depends. In terms of foraging, um, it's, it's hard to get better than Galloway in terms of the variety, you know, between seaweeds and fungi and plants and things like that. It's a bit like a kind of greenhouse down here. It's, in terms of plants, it's comparable to the southwest coast of, of England, really, um, you know, and Cornwall way, because we've just got that lovely kind of warm uh, kind of uh, maritime climate and quite sheltered too. Um, so you know, that's amazing. But I mean, the whole point of foraging for me is it's it's about that kind of pragmatic optimism and wherever you are, there's always something really cool about it, you know, as long as there's a little bit of green space. So um, I feel quite excited to be most places uh, if I have time to explore. So I think um, you kind of open up the world of foraging to people just showing there's lots of exciting possibilities. Like you talked about the wild cocktails and seaweeds and ferments and the wild spice rack um, just because I often hear a lot of people just thinking of foraging as being about bushcraft um, or just about mushrooms so it's quite nice there's other stuff. I suppose this amazing kind of resurgence of interest in wild food that's probably you know there, there was this kind of move back towards foraging in the in the 70s with you know Richard Maybe and things like that uh, you know, in the Roger Phillips' excellent books, and there was a little bit of a spark then. You know, remember the Good Life was on TV, and uh, and all of that. And but then that kind of slightly dwindled, and consumerism was the god. And and now, in maybe the last less than ten years, maybe five years, really, it's it's really started seeing it since Noma. Uh, you know, kind of one world's best restaurant with their Scandinavian forest cuisine. Since you know, like the hipster kind of idea, you know, but which is you know. I don't know quite what it means, but one of the really nice things about that kind of hipster vibe is, is people making things for themselves and, uh, and and just actually trying to make really nice things from scratch. It's kind of like a crafty kind of kind of movement. That's how I pick it mm -hmm. up anyway. So there's this amazing resurgence that's um, that's kind of happened and, uh, you know, driven by lots of factors. And I guess I was kind of lucky in that I've been doing walks for 20 years in that kind of quieter period, I mean, there's always a huge latent interest, and I did them in my spare time as I did other jobs around around the food world, and um, just still teaching my spare time and teaching myself, expanding out from my mushroom knowledge into plants and teaching myself about seaweeds and all that kind of stuff, and you know, and it and it just kind of I just kind of got lucky, and at the right time I decided to quit a job, and I was getting so many people asking me to do guided walks that I kind of. Um, Thought, well let's try and give this a go as a, as a full-time thing and you know a friend just set me up with a website in five <laughs> minutes and put me on twitter you know i i've coined this term cyber foraging and i suppose i am a little bit it sounds a bit dodgy but you know that, that kind of thing of going out and then sharing what you found and that's actually driven by my business really is just sharing that kind of information and that excitement uh, online yeah. so like everything kind of came together at once really that resurgence of interest in foraging and a bit of technology, just and a, you know, you just enough about the technology to, to to do it, and just you know, going going with what I uh, what I felt instinctively, and and that is mostly about just sharing uh, the amazingness of of wild foods and wild plants and fungi, whether they're edible or not, really. But obviously, the the, the eating side makes them a bit more exciting, and and I guess that sharing is what's kind of you know kind of driven driven things forward for me, and yeah, I feel like you know part of a movement now and kind of one of the older farts <laughs> in that movement as well you know, in, in terms of the modern uh, you know reinterest in, in, in foraging and I'm, I'm sure you know herbalists and things have, have never really lost connection that there's a 
continued line in it there, but certainly in terms of gastronomy, which is more the side that I yeah. come from, uh, there was definitely a big dip and everybody was interested in anything, but as long as it was exotic and weird and wasn't from the UK for, you know, the yeah. 80s, 90s, noughties even. And, uh, and now it's it's really getting local. So really interested in that, that kind of gastronomic side and also that kind of sustainable food side as well is really, really exciting for me too. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure what your original <laughs> question was. I was just... Uh, yeah, yeah the, the local food um, movement is um, is getting quite a big big now. Um, I think with herbalists, it seems to be a lot of um, herbalists have said to me that when they did their training, it was mostly theory-based and they didn't actually get out a lot to do the foraging, right. which is a shame. You're, you're reminding me of, uh, of uh, my first encounter that I did. Not long after I went full-time, like five or six years ago, I did my first, uh, I did a thing called Confidence with Carrots. Uh, you know, everybody's a little bit scared of yeah. the uh, APAC family and the carrot family and getting the right thing. So, you know, there is demand there among people further on in their foraging journey. And I noticed there was a lot of people asking me questions online. So I, I basically advertised this course in the, in the carrot family. They got booked out by the um, uh, Scottish Herbalists Association or something like that. Did a kind of block booking of, of all the places pretty much. Um, either that or I put it on specially for them. It seems like a long time ago now. Anyway, I was extremely nervous because thinking, you know, there's going to be at least you know, lots of yeah. herbalists turning up and they're going to know so much about plants. And of course they did. They knew what the plants did. But you're absolutely right. It was a kind of a bit of a surprise to me that so many of them hadn't really encountered these things in the flesh. You know, I hadn't really encountered that world very much. And was I think you guys call it like brown brown bottle herbalism. And uh, yeah, so it was a really, that was a real eye-opener for me that actually... I did know, you know, it's about confidence, yeah. isn't it? And I'm, I guess I'm not lacking in confidence. I wouldn't have put it on if not, but you always do question your knowledge levels and whether you should really be competent to teach people stuff that's a matter of life and death. And uh, that's kind of healthy to kind of constantly question yourself. But it's also nice to recognize that you do know good stuff that's really valuable to people. And uh, that, that was an eye-opener for me. And I met some uh, lovely uh, herbalist foragers who I've stayed in touch with now and are uh, have become friends and are now you know kind of teaching foraging as well so that was uh that was really oh, that's good yeah you're right I think it is about the confidence isn't it? it's confidence to to teach it and all this confidence for people themselves to go out and do the foraging and pick things and yeah. so if people are going out like because yeah. there is such a big resurgence if people are going out do you have how would you encourage them to start yeah well um yeah, I guess it's um, I'm sometimes a bit surprised by the people who book on my walks and uh, how little kind of personal research they've done on it. I mean, obviously, I do get a reasonable proportion of people who are trying really hard at home and looking at pictures and you know, bought all the books and things like that. But there's also a significant amount of people who are just coming because they're curious and possibly just because they need permission. Um, you know, in a way, you know, like the nature in the wild is a little bit excuse me, a little bit scary to them. And, and it's like that kind of permission thing and getting them just to feel kind of comfortable with handling some of these plants. And, uh, you know, I had, a, I had a walk recently and a guy pointed up this lovely green leafy lane and he was like, so how much of that would kill you? <laughs> you know, and halfway through the walk, and I was like, oh, right, okay, we have to kind of rewind a little bit here. And, uh, you know, like there's really very little out there that would kill you um, in terms of number of species. But um, there is quite a lot in terms of volume. You know, if you're if you're near the river, then there's going to be tons of hemlock water drop water there. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So, so yeah, there's different different baselines that people are, are coming at it from. 
Um, and uh, it really is just about that kind of making them just feel comfortable. And, you know, the, I think the thing I always come back to is, you know, if you learn even just three things uh, in a year, you know, that's three things. And in 10 years, that's 30 things, so, you know, and if you just keep accumulating small amounts of knowledge, not everyone can devote as much time mm-hmm. to being out and exploring as, as, uh, as maybe I've had uh, the opportunity to do. But uh, and it also gets easier. ID skills get uh, easier as you uh, as you um, kind of move down that uh, that progression. You know, once you learn a few sort of uh, easy plants, then everything else starts to look a little bit more accessible as well. And I just try and kind of open that out to people. Um, I guess one of the challenges is you have a diversity of knowledge levels in a group. I mean, I take twelve or fourteen at, at, at the tops in a group, and you might have some people who are quite far on in their wild food, food journey and just want to do really kind of technical stuff and then you might have some kids as well and and some people who've you know like picked a few brambles and a bit of wild garlic but are really near the start and just trying to carry carry everybody along in that and uh, uh and, and make sure it stays interesting for for everyone that that's kind of one of the challenges in how you how you kind of you know guide a walk I yeah again from your question sorry no I was just asking how you'd encourage people to begin so would you suggest people went on a walk to start with oh yeah yeah absolutely and well actually no well a a walk's great but I mean really Mm -hmm. get out there I mean it's around you all the time you know it's it's not not hard We, we have more access to information than we've ever had before and you can teach yourself and uh, I think the walk bit comes in as as that extra confidence thing further down the line but I mean you know, you can teach yourself. I mean, a lot of people have had mentors who've, you know, become, you know, um, you know, started doing what I do. I don't really ever have a particular mentor myself because I just want to know what was, what things were, you know, and if you, if you allow that, if you have that curiosity, you can find out and you can build confidence very gently yourself, you know, and um, yeah, I, and I actually find sometimes that, I do get the impression sometimes that people who ask most questions on a walk are not always the ones who are absorbing most mm-hmm. information. Um, you know, it's just like they, they seem to be on um, kind of transmit rather than receive, you know, so they'll just ask like loads and loads of questions yeah. and uh, and you know you're giving them the answer as best you can, but you're not quite sure how much of it they're taking in. And I see that quite quite a lot. And it's the quiet people you see who are absorbing it and processing it in their own way. And I think the the key with foraging is it's an extremely practical thing. You have to touch, you have to smell. You can't just learn it from books. You know, you can definitely have books, definitely look at some pictures online. Okay, we can unpick the, the world of <laughs> online identification later in that if you want. That's probably not great, but there is, you know, lots of quite good uh, information free mm-hmm. online. Um, so you can just really tune yourself into it. So I think that going on a walk is about maybe just moving to that next step or getting that extra confidence that 99% sure what it is but I need that extra 1% to help me be able to eat it and incorporate it in my diet um so yeah that that comes into it as well but um no I, I really encourage people first just go out explore around you, you know foraging starts at home it's not about looking for the weird and wonderful or the exotic it's about it's about looking what's um, around you on your doorstep in your garden creeping into your garden in the cracks in the pavement and connecting with that and finding out what that is and what to do with it. And uh, anyone can do that at, at, at any point they choose to, really. It's something you can do while you're doing something else, you know, while you're waiting for the kids at the school gate, while you're mowing the lawn. Please don't mow your lawn. Just let it grow. <laughs> but, <laughs> so um, I, th- I think people should, should really self-start and uh, just follow their, their, their curiosity. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
let that be the launch pad. And of course, you, you know, go on a walk or team up with other people and uh, you know, for, as you as you go on in your journey, and it's a lovely thing. Foraging is a wonderful thing to do, uh, you know, in a group, and especially if you have someone there who can give you a little bit more confidence. But there's also that danger if you have somebody that you hang out with regularly who has that confidence. That's is extremely valuable, but it means you may never actually develop that confidence mm -hmm. yourself, or you'll develop it more slowly. You know, so you actually definitely have to go out there and say to yourself on your own with your own set of knowledge and your own kind of feelings and reactions and observations to a plant and say, well, actually, I know this for myself is, is what this is, and I am comfortable to eat it, and not because somebody else is telling me what it is. Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that is a, a pivotal point. Um, I was probably quite lucky that I crossed that point really early, and I do, I do notice that people who start off with wild mushrooms, if they get really you know, a decent amount of confidence with wild mushrooms early, then the, the other kind of uh, categories, if you like, seaweeds and plants and things, uh, are quite easy in relation to, mm -hmm. to that. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, I just think, I think you do need to just spend time yourself with the plants and connect with the plants in a really physical and intimate way using all your senses. Yeah, I think mushrooms, right, because I suppose there's a big fear with mushrooms about picking the wrong ones and there's a lot of negative press about them, about going out and picking. It is. It's just the price we pay for living in a, a microphobic culture. I, I would love to. I'm sure there is some great research on it somewhere. I've never quite got that. But I'd love to read a, a full research PhD on the evolution of microphobia in the UK and and the and North America. In fact, you know, what, when do we become so disconnected mm -hmm. from fungi? But the truth of the matter is that the, the only real challenge with fungi is that identification is harder because you're looking at the reproductive part of something that's invisible rather than with a plant, you've got lots to go on. You've got its seeds, you've got its flowers, you've got its pollen leaves, you've got its uh, basal leaves, you, you know, you've got the root as well if you want, and depending on what time you connect with it. Whereas with uh, with fungi, you have just got this one ephemeral thing. So it's the challenge is identification. It's not about there being loads and loads of deadly poisonous fungi mm -hmm. out there. It's about that nuance between delicious <laughs> and deadly, which kind of goes off goes into the into the carrot family as well of plants you know that that sort of very fine identification line between what's what's really tasty and what what might kill you but in terms of volume and uh, i say this all the time i always feel i have to really defend <laughs> mushrooms and, uh, and uh, i just say to people all the time actually you're way more likely to come across a poisonous plant they're around you know foxgloves and um uh, hemlock water drop water and even hemlock is you know like they're around us we've got you know you've got wolfsbane in people's gardens goodness sake you know like there's really really quite strongly poisonous plants around us all the time um yet people choose to be really paranoid about fungi so it's definitely about their not the volume of them or how much they are or even the fact that they're particularly that much more deadly it's just the fact that they're a bit the identification is extremely yeah. difficult it's quite good it kind of keeps me at work a little <laughs> bit you know so it's <laughs> yeah so um there is a kind of an aim at the moment in Scotland, I think, to become a globally recognised food tourism destination and a hub for wild food experiences. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on this and about some people's concern over sustainability of foraging. Yeah, OK, that's uh, that's two uh, quite yeah. different questions, although they're related. So remind me of the second bit first um, afterwards, if I don't okay. get onto it. But, you know, the first one about, um, you know, promoting foraging, I mean, I mean, I've said this, I've talked a lot, I did, years ago, I did a talk to 
the accommodation providers in Dumfries and Galloway. Um, this is when I first started and I worked a little bit hard, uh, harder at kind of promoting what I was doing and, uh, and, and, and going out there. And, and uh, I did talk to them and I, I realized that foraging, you know, the buzzwords in tourism then and still now are food tourism, experiential tourism and nature tourism. And, uh, you know, these are the big growth areas in, uh, in, in tourism in Scotland. And if you look at the Venn diagram of those three growth areas, what sits right in the middle of all of those is, is going out and foraging, you know. Um, it really is just the, the pinnacle of, 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 of all those things. So um, on, on that basis, it's, it's absolutely should be at the heart of um, you know, how we kind of promote Scotland um, kind of nationally or internationally even. But it also, that slightly misses the point that foraging is something that you can do anywhere. So... It's, it's a tricky one you know it's like it is lovely pictures of our beautiful deep forests and our amazing dramatic coastline and people foraging in them is is really great but it could equally just be a little bit of waste ground that you could have in you know the suburbs of london or yeah. you know a scrappy park in a, in, a, in a in a city or something like that i mean that that's where foraging the heart of foraging really is it's, it's not necessarily in these spectacular kind of yeah. landscapes so, um, but I do think it is something that, that, you know, we could definitely push to the front in Scotland because we, there's, there's a few things that are in our favour. We have um, access the right to roam. Uh, so, you know, you really can just go and forage and pick things for your own consumption anywhere. And of course you need to do that responsibly and thoughtfully. And I don't think there's, I've never seen any particular evidence to suggest that anybody isn't uh, doing that thoughtfully and responsibly um, when they're doing it for themselves um, or indeed in commercial settings, but we'll stick to the personal foraging experiences. So um, I think it's absolutely right to kind of focus on that. I also think it's right to focus on a little bit how I kind of um, started working with UROX on that um, building, what we call, what, what I started calling micro businesses based around foraging, but it turns out a micro business uh, is anything that, that has uh, up to 60 employees. <laughs> so what we're really talking about is nano businesses. That's why I have, I'm me, and I don't really want to employ anybody else. Um, I've worked with other people, but I don't really want to employ anyone. You know, So tiny little businesses, and I think that is really the, the future, and not necessarily in tourism, but just in terms of sustainable uh, development, especially in rural areas, but not exclusively in terms of just having these this massive network of tiny little businesses that are really nimble, you know, so foraging really suits, it doesn't suit big business It's part of its charm. And it's why lots of big businesses are trying to adopt foraging or trying to look like they're foraging. Um, and some of them are doing it well and genuinely, and others are just sort of, it's a bit of a greenwash, you know, look at us with our wild produce, but uh, you know, they're just waving a bit of sorrel at it at some point in the, in the an industrialized production process. Um, so what, and the the reason that they can't really adopt it in a in a scaled up way to big business is because like you can't rely on all these plants all the time. They come in a in a flash, you know. If you want to get the elderflowers, well, they're they're pretty much past it um, in Galloway now, or certainly by the coast. Uh, you know, so it's a very short window. You don't have that all year round availability, so you have to kind of kind of grab what's there, and that really suits small nimble is the word I use all the time, like nimble businesses that can. They could jump from one thing to another. They can do a production run of 200 bottles of a delicious gin, and then they can do another delicious gin, and they're selling it direct to their to their audience. And I think that, to me, is is how foraging could kind of fit into developing Scotland's mm -hmm. economy. Um, I don't really see hordes of people coming to Scotland just to just to kind of learn about foraging. It's lovely. I do get people who come from overseas and 
you know, kind of connect and they want to connect with where they are through learning about the edible flora and fauna. I think that is the most beautiful and intimate way to connect with a with a new landscape. And I had some lovely Americans who came on a couple of my events and they say this is the first thing we try and do when it, wherever in the world we go, we just want to go out with somebody who can can help help us kind of more quickly connect with what we can eat in that landscape. And to me, that is like really beautiful tourism you know it's about like connecting and respecting the place that you're visiting learning its cultures learning about its um uh, its uh, biodiversity and uh, that's 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 absolutely wonderful if we, if we could encourage that kind of tourism it would be a, yeah. it would be amazing but um i guess this thing with tourism that we it's how it kind of it has traditionally been a numbers game yeah. hasn't it and i suppose now we are going more for the quality side so yeah so really really lovely way to connect and i'm totally i think that it's uh it's a great way of kind of putting a good image of scotland out there i know up in finland i met a lovely uh finnish uh foraging lady called eva gunnar she's coming over to scotland um, to do some talks and uh, they're promoting finland through through kind of wild gastronomy and so on and there's absolutely no reason that that scotland can't do that but i i actually think the real power of foraging is to connect our inhabitants mm-hmm. you know to to their you know, I, I, and tourism is, is is very nice, and people can plan around it, and I will totally support that and be part of it. But I just want like micro businesses supporting their local yeah. chef, and you know, you can go to your local shop, and they, they've got somebody who's bringing in beautiful greens that, that, that there's a, a, a bumper harvest of or a surplus of that year, you know, and and that that's the thing I think where the real power of, of yeah is. yeah that's kind of where the exciting thing is. I think for more of the kind of local food movement. I'll give you an example of it that maybe illustrates that. I get a lot of, not so much now, but there was a period when quite a lot of people were saying, oh, I'm making a, a foraging map of, uh, of Scotland or uh, or it might have been like a, it might have been a city or an area or a county mm-hmm. or something like that. We're doing a foraging map and would you like to be involved? And it's always really lovely people with uh, really great intentions, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, it's kind of, it's like it kind of misses the point of foraging that, First of all, 95% of what we're foraging is, is, is hyperabundant. It's around us all the time. So, you know, imagine putting ground elder on a foraging map of Scotland. I mean, every single 10 metres square, you know, apart from the concrete areas, even some of them possibly would have it in it. So, you know, what's the point of having a map, you know? So it's about learning recognition skills, not kind of directing people to it. And then if you put on the rarer stuff, you know, like maybe the where there's a good chanterelle patch or, you know, a really good place to get chicken in the woods or something, um, then what's the point in that either? Because then you're sending everybody yeah. to it and, and you know, the, the, you know. So, so actually those things are kind of self-protecting because they are more mm-hmm. scarce. So you have to be a bit more focused to connect with them. And that process of connecting and finding them means you revere them a little bit more and you're not just going to go and take too much. So, so I'm really resistant to the idea of wild food maps, partly because I don't think they work and partly because I think they, they kind of miss the whole point of foraging. And uh, an actual fact, being sent to a place or told where a place is, I, I, I resist that hugely. When people say, oh, I've got a really good spot for it, it could be a really rare mushroom. You know, it could be morels that took me 25 years to find. And I was like, oh, please don't tell me. I want to find them. You know? And, and, and that, that, that discovery is the most fun you ever have with a new wild food. You know, like that recognition is like, I know this plant now. I found it. I was looking for it for years. And oh my goodness, it's right next to me, you know. And and I and, and that that I, I still remember the times when I first connected and the locations where I first connected with something that I've been searching for for a while. And they're special places and really special moments. And 
I wouldn't remove that from anyone. And I, I kind of say it jokingly when people ask me where they could go and pick Sean Terrells, but I genuinely mean it. It's like, I, I know everyone's a little bit different, but it's like, they are the exciting moments when you find something and it's, and it's for you and it's you and that place and that wild food altogether is, is just, just the special moments. And of course, as you get more experienced, that happens a little bit less, you know, I kind of, you know, my encounters with things that I've been searching for are getting less, the more, the more I've, I've, I've kind of learned mm-hmm. down the years, but there's still a, there's still a list in your head of all that stuff that you want to really find in the wild, Dittenberg and, um, yeah, I've got a morel spot or two now, but you know, still that's super exciting, you know. I suppose that connection that people have then as well um, connects them more to the land and helps them to protect the land. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If, if you just send someone to a place, or if, even if people ask you, oh, where can I go and get this?" It's, it's kind of like that commodity mm-hmm. culture. It's, it's treating like wild foods almost like they're a they're some sort of commodity. In actual fact, they're not. They're, they're they are like way more than that. Um, it's also why I never went down the supply line. It's um, you know I'm, I'm wholeheartedly support um, you know some amazing foragers out there who are supplying restaurants and, uh, and connecting with chefs, and that's a really great way of taking wild food uh, kind of further out into uh, you know to, to, to new people and, uh, and and giving it that really positive image that it's delicious and nutritious. But um, I never went down that line myself, and there's quite a few reasons for it. But I think one of the one of the key ones is um, I really love those moments of finding. So when a chef asks me now, can you supply me with with X? I say, no, I don't supply anything, but I can come and teach you guys how to take your team out, how to go out into nature, uh, around your restaurant, even if you're in the city, and, uh, and and find your own stuff. And it'll be stuff that's of you. It'll inspire you. It'll, it'll help the chefs be um, more connected with what they're cooking. It's a springboard for creativity. Uh, it's a break yeah. in the day. You know, it's... Uh, it's really valuable in a in a you know the kitchens are probably on the up in terms of you know the conditions in kitchens uh, certainly at the higher end kitchens but uh you know it's a really mm-hmm. hard work and long hours yeah. standing to get out for 10 or 15 minutes in between service to go and pick some even if it's a bit of wood sorrel or some lime leaves off the local tree in the you know if you're in the city i mean those, those breaks is, is just really powerful for a chef i think and that connection with the ingredients so yeah, sorry, that's what I was trying to get round to. Um, is that you, when I when I I've been to some really lovely uh, restaurants and pop up events and uh, making amazing wild food. And when I kind of sit with people there, some people are really get it, but I think they're only getting half the story or even less than it when they're eating it. They're actually I wanted to go out and meet the plants and then taste the plants and then we'll cook the plants. Yeah. You know, so you so you really revere that that bit of wild garlic yeah. or you or not revere that's too strong a word, but you really get it. You know. And I just think that, that food is so much more than sitting in a, you know, no matter how good the chef, that experience of that dish that you're eating is, is only a, a tiny proportion of the, the full joy and the invigoration that you'll get from meeting those ingredients where they are and just getting to know them in a, in a kind of intimate I suppose way. that takes us back to our origins as well of like the kind of hunter-gatherers and connected with the land that way that we're not, we're so oh, far yeah. detached from these days. Yeah, yeah, it, it's but it's it's so deep in our DNA. Um, you know, we've not been farming for long enough um, to, for that to be scrubbed from our DNA. Um, you know, maybe you know another ten thousand years of microwave meals or something. Um, if we survive it, maybe maybe it'll go. But uh, no, it's it's in there, and you know, it's how our memory works. It's how how we interact with our world. Uh, it's how our senses developed. How our sense of taste developed. So 
warn us about certain flavors. You know, bitter is a really powerful thing. It's a taste of health, but it's also a potentially dangerous taste. So, you know, we've evolved genetically to distinguish between so many different types of, of bitter. Um, you know, so it's, it's so many of our senses and uh, the way our memory works and the way we, you know, if you want to remember a packet of playing cards, you one of the really good techniques to use is to is to do it as a visual journey, you know, so I walk past the tree, it's got the ace of spades on it, and I turn right. And that kind of linear journey of, of, of using memory, that's just not some trick. That's because we used to travel through landscapes, rounding up resources, remembering where the where the uh, reed mace grows fat uh, on the corner of, uh, of the river bend, or, um, or where the reed mace actually comes two months later down, down in that bit over there because it's uh, further from the sea mm -hmm. or something, you know? So it's, it's like that's how our memories evolved, really, just adding together these important uh, points, these waypoints um, uh, to, to help us navigate through landscapes. So when I actually see people who get addicted to shopping, uh, you know, it's, it's just a little... It's actually a, a kind of twisting of that natural yeah. instinct of that little endorphin rush when you go to a familiar place and you find that familiar plant in that place. And, uh, you know, what shops have kind of hijacked that feeling a little bit. And it's like, oh, now I bought this pair of shoes and I've got this label on. And, you know, that, that's that same little endorphin rush that we used to get yeah. from knowing where the good plants were or where the roots of the birch tree are the perfect width yeah. to make bindings from. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And, uh, those places would have been exciting and give us a little little thrill of uh, of, of kind of familiarity or uh, or if you're finding them for the first time that that little uh, rush of kind of excitement you know and i think just these instincts have just got distorted into into consumerism mm -hmm. a little bit but they're still there underneath and i see them on these these kind of masks getting peeled away as people connect with plants and, and foraging and realize just how much is around mm -hmm. us all the time so Again, I probably wavered from your original no, no. question there. <laughs> it was just the second part of the question was just about the sustainability because some people have there seems to be a lot of um concern about sustainability and increase of foraging. It's just what you did you think about that? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's um I think it's good that people are concerned about it and it's good that uh, people are caring. Um and I think we should uh, definitely keep our house in order mm -hmm. as foragers. Um I do think it gets exaggerated because by people who perhaps aren't so connected with foraging there is this definite idea that perhaps we are after things that are rare or unusual but if you just come on a walk you know if, you, if anybody has that diet come out and uh, we will we'll be looking at you know common hogweed amazing um nettles uh, the lanes at the moment they're, they're full of um, elderflowers everywhere there's brambles everywhere we've been picking brambles so that's the one wild food that's never gone out of fashion and i don't really see any possibility that they're going to they're becoming rare mm -hmm. as a result of humans and i think there's a couple of key points that tend to get missed or, or have done i think i think people are waking up to this that first of all foragers almost by definition that they, they don't they're not looking for rare things they're looking for what's around them they're looking for what's abundant and rewarding and they're developing the skills to be able to use that so so that's that's number one you know that little rare bit of mushroom in the woods like the mycologists might might chip that off the tree or in days gone by or you know rare birds egg collectors and stuff like that you know but foragers aren't genuinely unless they get really geeky interested in that or they might just want to have a little taste of it but that's not what they're going to be feeding themselves or sharing with their friends so so that's important um the, the other thing is that all food has consequences mm -hmm. um it doesn't matter what you're eating it doesn't matter if you're a vegan or a 
vegetarian, even if you're a Jainist and only eat windfall, like you still, there is still a consequence to you picking up an apple that's fallen on the ground and, uh, and, and eating that apple and that, you know, some insect larvae might have done something in that apple and, and then gone and pollinated a flower. Do you know what I mean? So like absolutely every food has consequences. And I would say that foraging forage food has less consequences than nearly everything. I mean, if you are a follow that strict Janus diet of only eating windfall, um, then you're probably, that's about as kind of minimum impact as you might get. But, you know, um, thinning abundance in a landscape as you move through it, and that's what foragers are doing there, thinning abundance is, um, is, is probably the least consequences. So what I absolutely will not have is people sitting on Facebook telling me I shouldn't be picking elderflowers while they... Well, I don't try. I try not to imagine, and I try. To, I try to be really nice about it. But I do politely ask them what they're eating that has less consequences than the stuff that I'm using from around me. So I think that's a really important point that like everything does have consequences, and uh, it's actually our disconnection from from what is around us and abundant and trying to feed us, and uh, uh, and in preference of um, all this artificial stuff that's mass produced uh, with greater consequences and huge yeah. food miles, and it's that disconnect. So. It's kind of like people are sitting in a sitting in a kind of a, a world of plastic, mm-hmm. uh, getting. I think it's like a it's a kind of an understandable uh, defense or overreaction to the fact that they are really annoyed by how things have gone, but it's a refusal to change their, all their actions to to accommodate that. So you know, please don't sit eating. Please consider what is on your plate, and then you know, it, it, has it come from the other side of the world? It, just because it's got no meat in it doesn't necessarily mean it has. Uh, lower impact than, than than a piece of meat that uh, you know a piece of venison that the local guys just shot for me mm-hmm. on the glen. Do you know what I mean? So um, yeah, I, I try to kind of have to bite my tongue and say, you know, how dare you like me a little bit? And I but I do politely kind of challenge people and say, well, what what do you eat that's that's, that's having no impact on on nature? Um, and this idea of of putting fences around uh, nature and nature reserves is. I mean, I understand why it's happened, and I think it is a good thing, uh, you know, with, with things become extremely rare. But in general, I think putting fences around nature uh, is, is just quite, it just means we've kind of lost. And if we really have lost, then I guess that's the way it's going to go. But I don't think it's too late yet for us to actually just reconnect yeah. a little bit. Um, I'm not suggesting that, you know, foraging is going to suddenly feed the world. I'm suggesting that it's part of a massive and complex food system but it can push people in the right direction. It can reconnect us to what is around us and help us to yeah. cherish it. And um, I'm absolutely delighted in kind of the last five years or so, I've worked more and more with uh, Scottish Natural Heritage, who I think, I think it's fair to say their, their basic premise and their stand or their outlook towards foraging was one of suspicion and mistrust that foragers were potentially something that is going to damage all these, uh, these species that they're, that they're custodians of or uh, protecting I think they would say um, and, uh, and I've actually seen this progression there just through enlightened individuals in their organizations and and uh, kind of talking and conversation and dialogues and just steadily kind of chipping away is that they now accept that pretty much in Scotland that foraging is a powerful force for reconnection and for helping people cherish and and safeguard nature you know um, if nature be you know, humans are keystone species, you know, whether we like it or not. And it's, the question is not whether we're a keystone species or not that affects everything around us. It's a question of whether we're a good keystone species or a, or a, or one that is just sort of um, 
not so much a keystone species as pulling the keystones out of uh, of what's around us, you know. So um, yeah. So and and you know, what more? What better way to 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 reconnect with all that than through what yeah. we eat? So yeah, don't don't go and save. Don't campaign to save the panda, um, which is potentially this could be controversial <laughs> and an evolutionary dead end, whilst ignoring all that lovely stuff that, that that's around you um, and that you could be kind of connecting with. Uh, on, a, on a more intimate level through foraging I think that's uh, yeah and also in that with the health the health aspect of it as well I mean a lot of the food that is traveling from all these miles away has probably lost a lot of its nutrients whereas the food that you're just getting from outside your door is going to be a lot higher in nutrients oh yeah well that, we're down a, down a, a whole uh, other mm -hmm. uh, kind of uh, closely related alleyway there in terms of like the, that biodiverse eating uh, yeah you uh, plant you know wild plants are growing by definition, where they mm -hmm. want to be. So, uh, yeah, they, they are getting what they want. They're not being forced into what they want or to grow in a certain way. And um, you might get a little bit less of them because they've not been genetically modified. But what's there is not, I'm not, I don't have all the data to hand, but what I have seen is things like common hogweed, you know, compares massively favorably in terms of its nutrient density, vitamin C content to, to things like that are billed mm -hmm. as superfoods, you know, like, you know, greenhouse grown kale from lord knows yeah. where you know and so so yeah wild foods definitely have um uh, in general uh, are going to have a better better thing but they're, they're not homogenous that way i mean some some are some are like other foods you can eat a lot of too yeah. much of anything so it's about biodiverse eating it's not about um you know gorging yourself on just one thing but it's about eating really diversely from loads of different things and i'm sitting looking out over the uh the fleet valley out my window here and i once did a rough estimate this was maybe six years ago so it's probably got bigger since then as my knowledge has grown but um i reckon there was a, within 10 minutes walk of my house throughout the course of a year there's at least 300 things mm -hmm. i could eat uh you know within, within 10 minutes walk so that's that's kind of a massively you know what that does to your gut flora is is yeah. going to be good and we're not talking about lots of everything we're talking about little bits of, of other things and you know so that, that that works extremely well if i if i get on a bike and i can get down to the coast in 15 minutes you can add another 200 things onto that so you know we're talking maybe 500 things on in your diet and some of them are tasty but don't eat too much of them like I don't know, coriander grass, uh, sea arrow grass, triglochid maritima, and, you know, it's got some cyanogenic, cyanogenic glycosides in it. So don't eat too much of it. That's easy, you know? Don't don't go gorging on it. Um, and other things you can eat as much as you want. But uh, it's it's about having lots of little yeah. things, you know? Like a wild salad. Um, I show people on the beach will taste some sea radish, and they're like, wow, that's really strong. So I'm like, yeah, but, like, that, that's fine. And the challenge in foraging is to find those blander things that, that uh, farming does so well, uh, so that's why um, you know lime, lime leaves in the in the early spring are uh, really godsend, you know, because they're they're just kind of cucumbery and light and don't have awfully much flavour, so you can mix them in with all these uh, other other pungent things. That's the thing, I guess. Farming as well has bred out all the that intense flavour, and so people aren't as used to that, like especially like the things like the bitters, because we don't really get eat it so often much. Yeah, we have, we have altered mm. our palate. I mean, there's a few things we've got we're used to way more carbohydrates than i think we evolved and uh, yeah, i'm guilty of this too so <laughs> patting his belly you know i'm not uh, you know so we've got used to way more carbohydrates than is would have, would have probably have naturally been able to consume um but certainly developed an incredibly sweet tooth i mean if you think 
without growing sugar beets and sugar cane and they're moving all around the world you know how many real natural sources of sweetness are there around us you know i mean i'm thinking birch sap if you reduce it which has huge mm -hmm. energy things and honey which is a classic one um and uh, you know some fruits uh, develop develop a sweetness but it's, it's really so so you know like um agriculture has uh, definitely developed our, our sweet tooth uh, in a huge way and also yes definitely bred out that um favored that uh, gene that doesn't uh, doesn't take to um to bitter quite so closely you know um that's the subject that really fascinates me um is 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 there i was doing a show up in uh, orkney at their really excellent science festival they have up there and at the table next to me was some scientists from harriet watt university and they had these uh, little white papers, like litmus papers type things, with a compound on them. And they were getting people to try them. And their, 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 their line was, are you a super taster? And I was like, oh, this is quite intriguing. Um, and what they meant by that was, is some people, when they taste this compound, which is really bitter, some people have this incredibly strong, visceral, instinctive reaction. It's like, get that out of me. I can't take it. It's horrible. Whereas other people, um, probably myself included, um, taste it and go, yeah, that's bitter, but I can, I can deal with it, you know? Uh, so that particular compound is, it produces such a visceral reaction in people that have this certain genetic disposition to be, they call it super tasters because that's quite a catchy word at a science <laughs> festival. But what it is, is like um, uh, bitter sensitive people, you know. Um, and so, so there is a genetic uh, split in uh, Homo sapiens between bitter, bitter sensitive and uh, less bitter sensitive. And the reason that we haven't homogenized and, uh, you know, kind of one of those... Um, those genetic strands has been favored over the other and one has died out is because we as we moved around the planet and colonized new areas it paid to have really adventurous eaters that were resistant to uh, or, or less bothered by bitter flavors whereas also in our society uh, as we kind of moved around in kind of small units it would pay to have some folk who were really really anti-bitter uh, because that that can be the taste of dangerous plants so you know it's a bit of a dichotomy there but it you know, within a within a genetic pool, it's really useful to have both of those. But I think what's happened is the ones that are resistant to the bitter, uh, and, and you know, the super tasters have kind of dominated how how plants have been mm -hmm. cultivated, and uh, yeah, we've, we've kind of trained ourselves to all be uh, bitter resistant. Uh, yeah. Yes. But, uh, yes. Really, really interesting yeah. subject that and how how we've uh, how we needed how we needed to have both because we were moving around the planet. And uh, exploring new food resources in, in new new kind of ecosystems as we as we spread around the planet and evolved around the planet. Yeah, that's really interesting. How does how does your um your plate look? I guess when you when you are eating with all these five hundred little bits of food. Oh well, um, as I said, I, don't, I didn't get to the size I am by only eating uh, nice wild, wild greens and things like that. So uh, I am by no means a purist and. Uh, I'm, I have a word with myself sometimes because I kind of get out of the habit of, you know, kind of eating and practicing what I preach, you know. So I would I would say I rarely kind of cook a meal at home that doesn't have something wild in it, you know, whether it's a bit of mushroom powder. You know, we're not just talking about cooking things fresh and, and uh, you know, picking all those greens and cooking them. We're talking about having a building up a wild yeah. larder, a kind of pantry of, of, of flavors. And so, you know, your freezer's kind of full of berries from last winter and, you've preserved your jams but also really important things like seaweed powder and mushroom powder kind of go into most things that, that, mm -hmm. that i'm cooking and uh so yeah i guess there's always a little bit of wild going in there but i would say you know i, I do get asked a lot it's like 
what proportion of your diet is is, is wild and uh, most people will leave a little bit disappointed <laughs> you know if, if 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 i've got plenty of time um and i'm you know really enjoying kind of walking the dog in some nice new areas and picking and exploring then you know maybe over the course of the week 50 percent is the most i'd probably ever get to um whereas for, but for the most time and on average it might be 10 20 percent or less you know uh, it kind of depends and you know when i'm busy and chasing around it's it's kind of it becomes harder to uh we have to concentrate more to kind of uh, do that eating healthily yeah. and cooking because it, it kind of comes with the rhythm of being at home having that stuff in your fridge and and uh you know that you know i don't go out and pick stuff fresh every day i'll pick stuff that lasts really nicely like all the coastal succulents are amazing just now siasta and samphire and uh and sea plantain and they'll last in my fridge for two weeks mm-hmm. no problem at all um you know so you can actually just have them there as your as your greens you know and just throw them in with other stuff so you know i had a stir fry the other night and it probably had six or seven things and use, using them up after a after an event you know the stuff that's been swaying in my car <laughs> and uh, quite often i'll i'll have that and I, and I would say as well you know sometimes i teach people all day and we'll cook in the wild and we'll do like lots of lovely wild stuff and then at the end i've kind of fed everyone and yeah. forgot to eat and on the home i'm starving and i'll have <laughs> chips on the way home, you know so I don't, I don't claim for one moment to be a to be a purist but and i definitely have to kind of check myself sometimes and say come on uh, because i feel good you know you feel great when you're actually cooking with the stuff that you're, you're yeah. connected with but um, i guess life gets in in the way yeah. of all of us um so just one last question um i just wanted to Put a wee plug for the fact that there is a foraging fortnight and the wild food festival happening in Stirlingshire and across Scotland um, in September. Yeah. And I'm going to be leading a wild cocktail walk at the food festival. Um, but you are the master right. of the wild drink and you work a lot with gin companies. And so I just wondered if you've got pro tips for people who might be wanting to create their own wild cocktails. And is there one that's your favourite? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I'm drinking at the moment, which I absolutely love. And uh, I'm a bit of a sucker for a martini. I quite like my booze mm-hmm. boozy. Um, so, yeah, like I love a martini, like um, really nice gin. And then, uh, and then a dry vermouth, you know, is my kind of like go to off the shelf stuff. But of course, you know, so much of foraging is about tweaking. Uh, and also, I, I would say to this, I, I'm very lucky that my job has kind of allowed me to work with like amazing drinks professionals who you know so you pick up tricks off them and they pick up tricks you know new ingredients off you and that's a really important thing actually that synergy between chefs or uh, or drinks people or producers and foragers is really really amazing and powerful you know that kind of the foragers throwing in those new ingredients and uh, the other person has all these techniques uh, to kind of harness the, those amazing flavors and and that kind of synergy between the two so i've kind of like learned loads of great stuff coming back from chefs that I kind of work with and, and certainly on the drink side as well and uh, hopefully they get plenty of fresh things to play with so that that's a really powerful thing that and the more you do it the better you get and yeah so before you know it you're, you're sort, sort of the wild drinks guy but you're not really um, so but anyway I'll tell you what I'm drinking just now and uh, probably too much off because it's this nice sunny spell <laughs> of weather and sitting out on the gym deck uh, looking over the valley um, so I make an infusion of um, just use a cheap gin and infuse some There's noble fir trees grow up behind me so uh, beautiful uh, conifers with uh, a bit like douglas fir only they have an even more intense grapefruity smell if you rub the needles um conifer world's absolutely amazing as long as you don't get a yew tree you, know, you need to learn to recognize a yew tree and then after that you can just play around with all, all those different uh, different um, 
needles on conifers in there. So yeah, noble fir is my favourite. I um, infuse that into some uh, cheap gin, and then I've made loads and loads of larch. I mean, all these conifers are delicious. Uh, made loads of larch um, uh, syrup uh, at the start of the year when there's tons of larch needles, and then again, they are literally just down the bottom of our lane there. So uh, yeah, this is pretty local to me. This one. Um, and I combine the two of those, so it makes this delicious kind of uh, uh, piney, uh, pine's not the right word, but um, uh, conifer. Uh, it kind of comes out a little bit like, uh, it's going down the world of an Amaro, like uh, kind of uh, Campari or something. Uh, not not the bitter orange flavour, but it's got that kind of sharpness. I add some citric acid into it just to kind of uh, add to the tartness of it. So that kind of works like a liqueur. Um, I have a beautiful... Uh, gin that they make locally that I kind of helped them with about five years ago when they were starting up and they use noble fur in that gin and uh, some bladderack because that's the crafty distillery at Newton Stewart, uh, their Hills and Harbour gin which I'm particularly fond of. Um, so I, I use that as the as the gin base and then I my liqueur that I've made with another gin and uh, all these fir trees, a little splash of that and then my other favourite thing to do is to make vermouth. Uh, so I kind of make a vermouth at home um, which can have I don't know, up to 50 plants. You can make one with three plants or you can make one with 50. And it's just an aromatized wine, just infusing uh, different uh, plants into uh, into into a wine, really. Um, so that's the vermouth. And, uh, and then just mix the three up in a glass, you know, like uh, two gin and one of vermouth and, uh, and a half of, uh, of, the, of the Cointreau thing. And it's just so refreshing. And if I'm feeling like, um, yeah, um, not, not overdoing it, I will let that down with a little bit of uh, elderflower champagne or something like that. Pineapple champagne is on the menu this week, and um, just to make it a little bit longer. But I do, I do tend to drink it quite easy. So yeah, yeah, just uh, just throw things in bottles, and uh, if they don't get if they don't get better, you taste some taste some you've been infusing after a month, and it's not not got any better. Then put it back and let it infuse some more, and, and keep trying it. And a few years later, things mostly get better, unless they're flowers that burn in, in alcohol a little bit, you know, and they, they have a peak point and then they start to degrade. Um, but, you know, most things like twigs and um, bits of bark and uh, berries and fruits and things, they, they, they generally get better. So, uh, yeah, if in doubt, put it back to the back of the shelf and, uh, and uh, have a rubbish later. So, yeah, that's what I'm drinking just now. And uh, Great. So, finally, is how can people just get in touch with you if you want to just give yourself a little plug? <laughs> Oh, yeah, well, uh, thanks very much. Um, yeah, I'm just uh, Galloway Wild Foods, so that's my website. Um, you know, it has my events, my walks on it, but it also has kind of contact details if people want to book me for a private booking, you know, um, anywhere in Scotland and, you know, for, what, 12 to 14 people, up to 14 people, I suppose I should say. Uh, so there's that, but really it's mostly the website is about lots of free information and sharing kind of, you know, like my thoughts on uh, on plants and what I love. And uh, also, if you do social media, I do lots on Facebook as Galloway Wild Foods, and I do Instagram and Twitter as at Mark Wild Food. There's no point in following all three because they just suck through the same posts onto each onto each format. Um, it's quite easy to spend too much time on on all of that stuff. But I do I do love sharing uh, on there. You know, it's quite a good way of being prompted. I'm prompt. I follow lots of cool foragers around the world, and it's really great to be prompted by them to see what they're picking. And say, oh, right, I hadn't thought of that. You know, it might be a technique or it might be 
something that's coming into season down south and that you hadn't thought about yet this year. So it kind of helps you with that sort of dance with nature and, uh, and anticipating the next step. So uh, yeah, I try to put out lots of tweets about you know what's what's in season and with some links to, to kind of information on it as well. So yeah, that's that's how to get that's all. That's great, and thank you very much for talking to me. Well, thanks for thanks for having me, and um, yeah, and uh, yeah, good luck with uh, with the, the podcast and the and the website and everything like that. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll see you soon for uh, see you at the festival. In fact, for uh, some of your nice uh, wild cocktails. Thanks. Cheers, Ross.